Welcome to Betrayal Recovery Radio, the official podcast of APSATS, the Association of Partners of Sex Addict Trauma Specialists, hosted by Dr. Jake Porter. APSATS is a nonprofit organization providing professional training and compassionate support to partners affected by problematic sexual behavior and betrayal trauma. In each episode, Dr. Jake guides a conversation of enlightening insights and practical tools to empower those affected by sex addiction and betrayal trauma to use their voices and live their values. The mission of Betrayal Recovery Radio is to offer hope to those in need of healing and growth to those moving through grief. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jake Porter. Well, hello, I am Dr. Jake Porter, and this is Betrayal Recovery Radio, the official podcast of the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, APSATS.org. Today, I'm going to let you listen in to a conversation that I recently had with one of the APSATS Board of Directors members. Uh, Shauna Meek. Shauna has been advocating in the field of betrayal partner since 2009, even prior to becoming a certified professional coach. She's the founder and owner of Livingstones Coaching based in Arizona with a local and international client base and a specialized training from IPEC, APSATS, the Gottman Institute, and AANE. Her passions include empowering partners to embrace healing of self with a strong boundary system and relationships riddled with infidelity, abuse, gaslighting, intimacy, anorexia, avoidance, and neurodiversity. She also specializes in supporting couples in need of therapeutic disclosures, restorative separations, and reintegration plans with a lens um, where one or both partners are on the autism special uh, spectrum particularly. And that is the subject of today's uh, conversation. Shauna has done a lot of work understanding neurodiversity, understanding autism spectrum disorder. She has a coming book uh, due out in 2024 called Determined for More, uh, a story about the raw truths and realities of finding strength in a complex neurodiverse marriage following divorce, remarriage, betrayal, trauma, and emotional deprivation. Shauna is just a wealth of information on this really important topic. You know, a lot of couples go through this. I've seen many couples in my office where, you know, traditional recovery measures um, either aren't working or aren't quite uh, achieving the results hoped for. And with some additional assessment, some additional, additional investigation, what's learned is that one or both or both partners are on the autism spectrum. This is going to impact both how treatment um, should be carried out, as well as what recovery is going to look like, um, what reasonable expectations uh, there are, how to better understand how things like empathy and compassion may emerge differently than what we might expect. So yes, Shauna joined me recently for our Navigating the Depths uh, online summit on co-occurring disorders, um, and I thought that this conversation was so powerful, I wanted to particularly uh, pull this one out to share it with a wider audience here on Betrayal Recovery Radio. Uh, before we turn to that conversation, I do want to make sure that you're aware of other things that... Um, are coming up, sponsored by APSATS. At the end of September, the 28th and the 29th, um, Jessica Edens is going to be teaching her Betrayed Families, Support for Children and Families training live via Zoom. 
uh, a great resource for coaches and clinicians who are hoping to support children and families after the discovery of betrayal. Um, on October the 6th, Dr. Barbara Steffens, the founding president of APSATS, will presenting, be presenting Help for Our Communities of Faith. That will be a one-hour presentation on October the, the 6th. Later in the month of October, the 20th through the 22nd, a three-day training from Dan Drake and Janice Cottle, Restoring Truth Disclosure Guide Training. And then two other additional big events coming up that I want to make sure you know about in November. November 1st through the 3rd is APSAT's 2023 conference, Trauma-Informed Care for Partner Betrayal, Enhancing Outcomes. This live online conference is going to be uh, amazing. Lots of great speakers um, speaking, including Barbara Steffens, Carol Jurgensen Sheets, um, uh, and, and, and many others uh, who names that you would know. And then later in that month, November 14th through the 27th, Absets will be offering its foundational training, the multidimensional partner trauma model training, the 14th through the 17th live online um, on Zoom. And if you are a professional who works with betrayed partners or those who've done betraying, um, whether you're a coach or clinician, or maybe you want to get into this, uh, this particular um, uh, a field and, and helping this population, if you have not taken the multidimensional partner trauma model training, I cannot recommend it highly enough. This four-day training will really help you have a better grasp on what is going on in cases of betrayal and how to truly uh, provide help and assistance and healing for that individual. And so there you have it. Lots going on with APSATS. And, uh, and, and now I'm happy to uh, transition to let you listen in on this conversation between Shauna Meeks and me on when a couple or an individual is dealing with betrayal in which one person has issues of neurodivergence. Welcome to another session of the Navigating the Depths Summit. I'm really excited to be joined by Shauna Meek. Shauna is a professional certified coach and APSAT's board of directors member, a coaching consultation supervisor, and she coaches partners experiencing betrayal trauma and couples who've experienced infidelity and are in, a, in um, neurodiverse marriages with autism and Asperger profiles. She began her work in the field of specialized coaching through APSAT's training and further expanded her expertise with training in Gottman Levels 1 and 2, Early Couples Recovery Empathy Model, ERCOM, Couple-Centered Recovery, and Asperger Autism Network. She is the founder and owner of Living Stones based in Arizona. She is also currently in the process of writing and publishing a book, which is amazing. Can't wait for that to come out. Um, it will be based on her own 25-year journey of uncovering neurodiversity following divorce, betrayal, and emotional deprivation, launching in early 2024. Shauna, thank you for being here for this summit. Thanks, Jake. Excited yeah. to be here and to be having these conversations. So Absolutely. And I want to give credit where it's due. Uh, the, the, the basic idea of this summit and the impetus and motivation to do it came from 
from you, Shauna. And so thank you for planting that seed and speaking up and offering this because I know that there are going to be thousands of people um, getting this resource. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Thanks for making yeah. it happen because yeah. <laughs> you were the guy to, to come <laughs> to. And so I appreciate it. You know how yeah. all this stuff works. So. So this session, we're talking about considering the impact for neurodiverse couples with autism and Asperger traits. And so just to jump right in here, what are some things to consider as we start our conversation? And what exactly are we talking about when we say neurodiversity? Yeah, that is a great question. And it has different definitions. So I'm actually going to read something that I looked up last night because I was like, from the Cleveland Clinic, let's, let's okay, go to let's a source of, of something. So it explains unique ways people's brains work, the differences, um, and I'm going to add a few things there, but the, the hardwiring of the brain. Um, we know all of our brains are unique, but really it, it's a unique way to look at how a brain can be diverse and they're, mm. you know, categorizing different conditions. Some are called disorders, things like that, um, that really help us define what neurodiversity even means. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. So what, so someone's saying, okay, so what is it? <laughs> what is neurodiversity? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, how would you explain that to a client you're working with? Yeah, I would say there are a few categories and I'm going to dive pretty quickly into autism and Asperger okay. traits, but yeah. ADHD can be classified as neurodiversity, um, okay. Tourette's, dyslexia. Um, there's lots of different uh, dimensions of neurodiversity, but mm -hmm. I, I just want to put that out there because I think that's really important. Trauma can be, you know, maybe mm -hmm. not a birth to death kind of neurodiversity, but there's a lot of different ways that our brains can be diverse. So when I say that, it's a broad word, but the autism Asperger kind of profiles or, you know, we'll kind of talk about that specifically because that's really the area that I'm more versed in, um, but yeah. there's a lot of overlap. So I do want to say that because there's a lot of overlap that research is starting to show with ADHD and autism and lots of different layers. So it's not like one compartment where we can say, oh, autism Asperger profiles are over here. So I say that because I think it's really important that we think of it from a strengths-based, a struggles-based, and really like a different lens mm. um, because it's not something is wrong with you. And that's like so, so important. I'm even hearing the word autism and I'll share a little, little snippets of my story because my husband was uh, diagnosed late in life, um, at 50 with autism level one. And so wow. anyhow, I just wanted to say that as we kind of just kind of lay the foundation of this conversation, um, that it is from strategies and what are some things that can make things harder, but what are some strengths that we can play off of in a coupleship? Thank you. And so yeah. let's say someone's listening to our conversation so far and they're still mm -hmm. kind of thinking, do I watch this whole session? Is this mm -hmm. me? Is this us? Uh, is this yeah. my partner? Um, so when might this be um, a consideration to explore this, this particular yeah. topic? I would say when 
So I'm going to, um, obviously we're talking about in light of sex addiction and betrayal trauma too. So most people right. I'm assuming coming to the summit, maybe not everybody, but I think it's important to say, could this be a layer or a lens that mm. we need to be looking at? So mm-hmm. if you're listening and you think, gosh, we've tried, you know, maybe there's some good sobriety. There's, you know, effort on both people's parts. There's a focus on the coupleship and, some of the traditional, maybe, you know, traditional modes of coupleship work is just not sticking. That's the way I like to say it. There's, there's been good insights, but then you leave the therapist's office or it's been months or years potentially. And it just kind of, the infrastructure doesn't feel like it's there or can hold the information. Um, When both are really committed, that's also another time where it's like we're really trying, but we're like missing. We're Mm. just kind of doing this in the air Um, is a time when I think the frustration can kick in because we might be looking at things from a different lens. Um, When there's roadblocks in communication and this is probably a very, a very big statement in that, but where there has been maybe roadblocks from day one of meeting. And that's something that even for my husband and I, we look back and we say, oh, wow, that was day one. There were Mm. some connectivity struggles even before, you know, even the sex addiction kind of took its form. Um, But there was really some, some misses. Um, And then I would say, the last kind of piece to consider exploring is when maybe there's been other diagnoses or things to consider that just don't fit. You might hear, you know, OCD, but that doesn't really fit or some ADHD traits, but there's still something else. So that's another time when I think it's worth just sitting back, listening to our conversation and just see if maybe this is a lens or something to consider. Absolutely. You know, um, what comes up for me is remembering, gosh, it's been several years ago now. So it was much earlier in my, in my clinical career, um, working with a couple in their sixties and them not getting traction, not getting traction, not getting traction. And in fact, you know, I was thinking they're not getting traction for two reasons. One, he can't stay sober. And I was working both with them as a couple and um, him, who was the the addict uh, attempting to recover. Um, I was working with him individually as well. And he couldn't get sober, but also there were behaviors and, and things I witnessed where I was concerned there might be NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. And, and that was sort of where I was settling. In, in treating them. But again, there was no traction. She asked for, I can't remember if it was her birthday or Christmas, but basically the gift she asked for was for him to go get a full psychological evaluation. Mm-hmm. And when he got back and it turned and he was diagnosed with autism, I mean, this guy's in his sixties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I then changed my treatment approach based on that. And all of a sudden progress began slow, but there was real progress. And so I just, you know, I I share that just to let our listeners know, like what Sean is saying here, this is the real deal. Um, This, this is real life. So what are some of the common traits um, that, 
are, are there for those with impact with autism and, and what are the impact of those? Yeah. Traits? And can I, can I just touch on what yeah. you just said there real quick? First? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I think is really important um, that you just mentioned there is like, when we're in our 60s or, you know, even in our 40s, even in our 30s, we've done a lot of life and mm-hmm. may have felt othered for, mm-hmm. you know, I use that term loosely mm-hmm. um, because something that can be really um, high for neurodiverse individuals. So someone with an, and I'm going to say, I didn't really say this early on, but autism is really, ASD is the diagnosis in DSM now, but I'm going to use Asperger kind of loosely too, because I think Asperger traits are really important to consider. And just because it's not in DSM-5 doesn't mean we can't be talking about it. So I might use them interchangeably. But what I think happens is there's a a sense of, I need to fit into this world that feels like it's functioning a certain way. Mm. And so sometimes what's called masking or camouflaging in the ASD world is really high. And that doesn't just mean it's coming from addiction. That doesn't just mean I'm trying to people please. It may be, uh, or I'm lying about who I am. It may be I'm trying to fit in. And so sometimes that can disguise kind of what the diagnosis is. So I just wanted to touch on that as you talked about the couple in their 60s. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, that's super helpful. And and so what are some some of those traits? that we might see? Yeah. So some of them, I just kind of categorized a few of them so I could really just share um, some specifics around that. And again, I just want to caveat, no two individuals are the same um, ever. Um, And especially, you know, with a diagnosis like ASD, just because we don't have what we might say eye contact. That's not necessarily the one thing um, or because we do a certain trait or not. So I'm going to list some things. And really, I think that's why the neuropsychological eval is so important because it's not just listing, check these things. It's yes. listening to the partner. It's doing an oral interview. It's seeing how you know communication works. So I'm going to break it down into a couple categories, if that's okay. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. So the first, I would say the anxiety. So that can be high. Sometimes anxiety disorder might be, you know, present or be diagnosed potentially because it is accurate or because the anxiety of acting out of fear of doing something wrong because they're trying to mirror what's in the world. Um, Increasing stressful, you know, increase in stressful situations. So that can be, you know, in crowded places that can be at parties having that kind of awkwardness, um, which increases that anxiety. Um, Maybe a tough time facing demands and like multiple tasks at one time. That can be really common and increase that anxiety. Um, Cognitive differences. You may notice like analysis of information is really, really high. So lots of charts, lists, um, lots of note taking. Um, Not that partners can't be betrayed. Partners can be very vigilant in that, but that cognitive difference in um, even the inflexible thoughts or lack of ability to adjust can be some cognitive differences. Um, Sometimes you'll hear the word no. Like if a question is asked before there's even time to really, that you think there's time to process, it's like an automatic no because the brain's kind of getting flooded. So 
it may be just a, a safety measure that's, you know, within the wiring of like an automatic no. Um, wow. Yeah. And so executive functioning, um, needing to, to be pushed to or encouraged to move through some executive functioning things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, sometimes there's paralysis in decision-making or not knowing what the desire or wants are. So that can kind of get blocked. doesn't mean they're not in there. They're just hard to form the words and really articulate that. Um, lack of understanding consequences for negative behaviors. So that doesn't necessarily mean there's no empathy either. There's different types of empathy, different categories of empathy. Um, so that's also something in ASD sometimes gets labeled. There's no empathy. And that's not usually accurate, typically. Um, overwhelmed with multiple tasks. Um, obsessions and repetition. This is where kind of OCD can be seen or that can be a subcategory of the diagnosis. Sometimes it's a lot of repetition. Uh, focusing on learning new things. That's a great strength really hyper-focusing on learning something new. Perfectionism, really needing that, needing words really consistent, um, even in language around um, perfectionistic thinking and communicating as they're trying to track. And that's now I'm going to lead into a little communication. Is this helpful so far, kind of Uh, with the categories? Absolutely. And I mean, you're you're saying things that are actually news to me. Uh, But one that I think is so important because I have heard it before and I think it's a huge misconception. So I actually want to go back a little bit, if that's Mm -hmm. okay, to the empathy piece, Mm -hmm. the empathy piece. And there is a misconception out there that um, those who are on the spectrum don't have empathy. I agree that is usually not true. You said there's different kinds of empathy. Can, can you can you say more about that? Sure, sure. Um, and you can add to this too, because sure. I know you, you understand empathy. And I'm just going to kind of touch on a few because things like motor empathy, those automatic response, um, that automatic mirroring, if I were to mm-hmm. go, you yes. go, what just happened? You're right. naturally going to do that. There may be a deficit in that, or they may be, you know, something that, doesn't allow the brain to really respond to that. Um, So that motor empathy might be lacking some. Um, Logical empathy. So I'm going to say that kind of getting information, hearing someone, you, you might hear things like you're just in your head or this is just, you know, you're up here. I need you to be here. How many times have we heard that just even in right. recovering couples? So this yes. isn't like yes. news to like, it has to be ASD, but that kind of, you know, there is an ability. Motor empathy might be a little bit harder, but I would say logical empathy of like being willing to hear there's yes. capacity for that in most people on the spectrum. And yes. then the emotional empathy, taking it and feeling and sitting in that emotion, mm-hmm. there still is capacity, but it might take a lot of repetition. Right. It might take a lot of learning um, because that that takes a lot that sometimes our brains are doing it automatically for us. And if there is a little bit of a limit there, 
you know, it doesn't mean it can't happen. So I don't know if you have anything else. Those are just kind of no, the three buckets. You said the things, mind. you said all the things I wanted said. <laughs> and and specifically okay. what I think is so important is naming uh, logical empathy, or I've heard it called cognitive empathy as mm-hmm. well, right? Yep. Where it's it's more in the head, that that really is a form of empathy. Yes. And and I have also experienced working with couples where the partner wants, you know, the betrayed partner particularly usually wants the betraying partner to show her, I'm just going to use the her pronoun here for the betrayed yeah. partner, to show her the same kind of empathy that she most naturally has, which may be more that yes. motor empathy or more that emotional empathy and maybe it's not a lack of, it's not a lack of effort. It's not a sign of coldness or distance. Yes. It's, it's a, it's an issue of neurodiversity that the way in which this other person primarily processes and experiences empathy is more cognitively. And is that Absolutely. okay? Right? Like, and and often if a if a partner understands that's not him withholding empathy exactly then it can it can be okay uh, I, that's my experience i'm i'm wondering about your absolutely uh, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely because i think there is when that understanding comes then the compassion comes yes and it's not like you said it's not a lack of willingness or trying for it it it's like the wiring being different and she's going, yeah, I really want to feel that. And so, you know, that it doesn't mean we say, oh no, there can never be emotional empathy. You can never step into my shoes, but it is a natural, you know, it's something naturally that happens that we just need to continue to work towards. Um, And I will say this too, just really quickly for myself, I have a form of phonemic dyslexia and it's mild, but if I don't know words, if I haven't memorized them in my left brain, it is going to take me asking someone mm. how to pronounce that word mm. because that phonemic deficit for me, um, even in my fifties is like, Oh, well, I don't know every word. I know a lot of words. And so I've learned to adapt to that. Wow. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, you know, so I just you. say that because, but I still get to ask to say, what does that word mean? And I mm. think that's where the willingness comes in rather than the shame. We start to understand. And so the neurodiverse partner goes, yeah, I'm not really getting that right now. Can you help me, you know, step into that? Can we practice that? And how important that is for the couple to understand is. Yeah. Thank you. It's a game changer. So, so helpful. Yeah. So helpful. So, so yeah. what can happen when autism is not considered with the couple in recovery together? Yeah, I think there can be a lot of frustration. There can be a lot of um, discouragement. The partner can be overfunctioning a lot if we don't mm. know, trying to fill in the gaps, right. really trying to, um, you know, just make for the coupleship, but then the, you know, the neurodiverse partner, the one that has the, the autism or is on the spectrum can feel really discouraged that I can't do that. So, so that can be a big, a big 
difficulty for the for the relationship too. Um, I think, you know, the the same piece that I was saying before is we don't recognize, and I have a few more categories if we want to even touch on those too, because the communication piece is so critical. It's such a big part of connecting. And that I think when we don't have that reciprocity that often a partner wants, um, that can be really discouraging if we don't really look at it. So I could talk a little bit more if we want to go into like expressive and receptive communication too. That can be really, really tough. I think that would be super helpful. Please. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is one of the biggest things because what are we, you know, usually if there's two willing parties and they're both going, we want to connect, we want to have this level of intimacy. Um, Some of these things aren't sticking or we're learning them is really understanding how and what is said. So I'm going to call that more of like the expressive communication Um, because there is kind of a lack of, of theory of mind. We call it kind of theory of mind, really understanding your partner's thoughts and feelings and seeing them as different from your own. So Mm -hmm. that can be a big challenge that obviously does go into some of that natural empathy that some of us have, and some of us have a harder time with that. And so really being able to infer what someone says. So that's, that's something that I just want to share because I know, I know in my own story, that was a really difficult thing of like, why don't you understand me? I've been sharing Mm -hmm. this. So that lack of theory of mind, another one and I know I'm using kind of a little bit more clinical words, but a weak central coherence. So in that just means seeing the trees, but not being able to see the forest, Right. being in the details, but not being able to see the context in the big picture. Um, That can be a challenge. Literal speech, that very direct speech can feel rude. It can feel like, wait, socially, you know, awkward in a situation or that sort of thing. And so um, whether it's in the coupleship or in a greater family system, mm-hmm. crosstalk at a dinner table, very difficult sometimes for someone with autism. There's a lot going on and it's pinging around the table. Some people can take that in, take that in. Okay, I'm going to respond over there. So that's a form of communication. Um, sometimes there's monologuing versus dialoguing. So kind of these very long stretched, um, not knowing when is a good time to pause or interrupting. If I think of that receptive communication, interrupting because the thoughts are going so fast, sometimes yes. in an ESD mind that it's like, I'm going to interrupt. And the person being interrupted is like, wait, but you didn't hear it. It may be more of, I was trying to catch what you were saying. And I will say, if it were the case that she is the one that's more neurotypical, which is a careful word to say, but, um, and he's more neurodiverse. She's going, wait a second, I have a lot to say. And she's talking in paragraphs and he's going, would you give me a fragment? You know? Right. So would you give me something a little shorter and smaller? Um, so those are a few things and that, that, um, sensitivity to, I'll step into a little bit more of the receptive communication. What is heard? and understood for someone with ASD. Mm. There's a lot of misunderstandings and gestures. Um, Sometimes doing their own individual work, it might be looking at cue cards of facial expressions 
that children look at. And that's not to diminish, um, you know, or put them down. It's really just to say these higher level micro expressions might be really hard to identify. So let's start with the mean really quick or the really happy or whatever that looks like. And so we'll start with those more exaggerated expressions um, and take those in. So that's just a few things that difficulty of that can be important to look at. Yeah. Communication. And just listening to you talk through those, I'm, it's just, maybe I'm projecting my own experience here uh, onto this. I'm sure I am actually, but it's just coming up for me again, how, um, how easy it would be to misinterpret some of these symptoms. Yes. Right. Yes. And I, and what I'm imagining because, because I don't have to imagine this, I've, I've actually dealt with this is you've got a Mm -hmm. partner who is seeing a therapist or seeing a coach, a very well-intentioned, really great professional. And this partner is describing her husband her experience with her husband and the professional is going narcissist, narcissist, mm-hmm. narcissist, right? Yes. Interrupting, yes. rude, self-centered, not showing interest, not showing empathy, right? All of this. And, yep. and oh my goodness, how sad. I, like I literally feel yes. it in my heart. Yeah. All the, the, the situations that that can create. Oh, mm-hmm. this pains me. Yeah. yeah, it really is. I mean, and and I say that because there can still be a narcissistic subset, but it sure. may not be an NPD because this is where it gets misdiagnosed a lot. Like the that's actually, I think, if I remember correctly from my training, I think NPD might be highest in misdiagnosis for men and borderline personality for women. So, because, you know, partners can, women will present a little bit different than men and vice versa, all of us as humans. But I think that really is like, it's really important to say, could it, could it be something else too? Because are we seeing this in other areas, not just in the relationship? You know, are there other characteristic things? Is there sensory things? I haven't really touched on that yet. Is there sensory things? You know, and I know as I'm sprinkling in just a little bit of my story, my husband would get very overwhelmed when a candle was on. We never knew why. The mm. scent is what overwhelmed wow. him. It wasn't wow. me. It wasn't my choice to turn a candle on or put something sensey in the wall or whatever. But that part and going, oh, earplugs wow. at a ball game, you know, a loop, the loop earplugs or what have you. Oh, it's not just because he wants to walk ahead. It's the input. That is so overwhelming. So mm. some of the sensory stuff too is really important to, to be, you know, downtime. What does that look like? It can really look like avoidance. Now that might be a subset. So we have, to, you know, we don't excuse it. We don't say it's okay forever. We don't say, you know, we don't need to listen to somebody at all. So we really, I think, want to be careful um, that this doesn't also become, well, it's just that because there still is relational needs both ways. Absolutely. That is so helpful, Shauna. Thank you. So how can we reframe support when neurodiversity is present within the relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Realistic expectations. 
Mm. Knowing the information obviously is a big one, just like you said, the the couple who said that would be the greatest gift <laughs> to me is really getting an evaluation. And I know it's harder. They're calling it kind of the lost generation of some of, you know, 40 plus or even 30 plus. A lot of research is going into kids. It didn't just come out of the blue. Now there's, you know, there's not enough study yet, to my knowledge, that says, is it all biological? Is it environmental? I think it's a lot of both. It's, you know, there's childhood trauma pieces. We have to really look at all the layers to Mm. this, coping strategies, you know, what's the cognitive, you know, distortions, all of that in the layers. But I think both being ready to adjust to some of this lens. And again, it doesn't mean we throw everything out in our, you know, recovery work. No not at all. That is not what we're talking about. Um, Focus on what can change and maybe what are limits. So if, for example, talking in paragraphs is something that is how someone communicates and it's very, you know, high level and it takes a while to to get to the point and another person's like, you lost me way up here. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, how do we adjust? How do we find software? that works for both of us. How do we, how do we look at that? Um, So I think that's really important. Hearing one another, getting a sense of what it feels like. And again, we have to really work hard individually um, to put the shame down, to really not let that voice just get really big. There's, well, I can't do this or the blaming or the overt pushing, you know, someone away, but really saying, I want to understand what my world is now. If I get this diagnosis or if I even suspect it, maybe we don't even need it. We just go, oh, that I never had a formal diagnosis, but I know I have some mild phonemic dyslexia. I know that. So can we adjust? Can we, can we see into each other's world? Mm. Um, Another couple things is really um, focusing on that self-regulation. It's, it's a little bit harder in my experience, and this is still, I will say, a new lens for me too. It's been such an aha the last, you know, year of just, wow, this is a lens I think we need to be talking about and looking at and experimenting with. And, you know, not only as the couple, but as professionals and really looking at that, um, but focusing back on that, you know, the co-regulation can be a little bit harder for neurodiverse couples, I think. Yes. Um, it doesn't uh, mean yeah. we can't, but I think, I don't know if you've experienced that. It's oh, yeah. that self-regulation that's going to be really imperative first. Absolutely. Um, we've seen some of that. Um, and again, compassion, having compassion and understanding for one another. It doesn't mean the needs of each other get thrown to the side. It means let's put it on the table and see where do we focus first. Mm. It can be very overwhelming to be like, oh gosh, these are, you know, even someone listening right now might be saying, that's a lot, it fits or some fit. What do we do with that? Um, so yeah. taking it really slow. Oh, that's um, that's so good. Thank you. And and that's, yeah. you know, just to, again, kind of, kind of put some story with what you're sharing um, conceptually, uh, the, the couple that I mentioned earlier, right, where mm-hmm. I had it wrong and learned mm-hmm. that there mm-hmm. was um, ASD uh, in place, 
the, the, the tweak that I made to their treatment plan was we went from hour and a half, uh, couple mm-hmm. sessions to one hour and the individual okay. sessions Great. from one hour to 30 minutes and they were more frequent, right. Instead of further apart. And so just kind of bite sizing it, um, understanding yeah. sort of the, the limits of, of capacity for one sitting and, and then within those sessions being very specific, very focused on, you know, kind of one thing, one skill, right. Or one subject. Um, and it was amazing how that shifted the whole course of treatment for this couple. That is so incredible. I remember hearing, I'm hearing a little bit more now, which I'm, you know, even learning from that, because I think even just to shorten, you know, that focus and help the couple stay on the goal. And again, we can like kind of shorten that Delta, that difference. If we can come as, Mm -hmm. as professionals or fine professionals that can understand that, you know, and, and be able to just a job. It's not always a, a full redo of it. Right. Um, right. You know, but even in an office or on your own. So, yeah. Oh, that's so good. So, um, so what can be supportive for neurodiverse couples? And I want to pair that also with the question of what are some specific tools that can help mm-hmm. these couples? Okay. So again, um, I think because of the way a good neuroclinical evaluation can help, you do get some subcategories in that report and you get some ideas of what are those things that the individual can be working on and then where might be some some gaps in the relationship. So again, I, I can't stress that enough. I know it's hard to find that support, but that can be a great starting point. Um, the understanding some of those characteristics and not flooding the system, even with information, even if you're listening to this and you're going, oh gosh, where do I look? I mean, I'll have some, I'll have some resources like a one page in the show notes or, or that sort of thing. But I think looking at, um, you know, one podcast at a time, one bit, cause it's just like magnifies, um, So I think those are really important starting points. Um, And then continuing to look at um, the layering that could be coming up. Is this a little bit more of my childhood trauma here? Is this, you know, having a professional support you in that and finding that person that can see, oh, this sounds like a trauma theme here. Mm. Um, What's coming up first? Because sometimes what I've kind of heard, you know, in seeing a little bit is those trauma themes can come up. And then the neurodiversity gets someone stuck a little bit. So it's hard to like communicate and come out of that. Um, and they're not one or the other. It's kind of seeing, seeing it together. So I think just small pieces. Um, and a couple, I'll just share a couple tools. I'll also, um, I don't think there's show notes. I think I said show notes, but put them in the, you know, for those that are, um, you know, paying for the summit and having that opportunity to gain some resources. Um, But one of them is called QAAA. It helps slow down the communication. Question, answer, answer, answer. So Mm. it's not for every conversation, 
but it's for practice of one person asking a question, then the other person giving three sentences. So the neurodiverse partner sometimes doesn't like to talk as much as the neurotypical partner, the one that's got maybe like a strength in communication. So it slows both of them down. And so that can be, it can help do that. You know, you do it 10 minutes a day and just practice that skill to help kind of reciprocal communication to be a little bit more balanced. Um, So that's one. Um, It also helps enforce that dialogue versus monologuing. Um, Yes. So that's one. Um, Another one is doing a one to five scale. So a lot of times we'll say, how do you feel? Or tell me what, you know, what happened? How do you feel? What do you need? That can be very overwhelming to maybe there's, you know, a lack of gaining those feelings really quick or understanding, or you might hear the word alexithymia. We might hear those things of like, that's really hard for someone if that's part of their characteristic. And so we might say, you know, you seem a little upset. Is that a one upset or a five upset? You know, and you can kind of scale it. Um, Or if a volume is too high in a room, you know, someone's talking really loud in the conversation or the argument or a conflict is getting really escalated. I'm feeling like that's a five right now. Can you bring it down to a three? You're giving a lot of information um, in kind of a code number. Mm, And then the last one is, you know, kind of using understandable codes. It might be a gesture. It might be put your hand right here if we're in a function and I'm talking a lot. So we've got to be Mm. open to it and willing to help one another. So you may have a code gesture, uh, maybe a word softer or concise, but we know what it means. We don't have to say five sentences to know what it means. So (laughs) that's good. Those are a couple, couple tools. I love those tools. The last one I've, I've done with um, some, some of these couples with these particular needs, but those first two are excellent. And I will absolutely be uh, uh, taking those and adding those to my toolbox. Thank you. Yeah. So when might it be time to, to look into this, you know, let's say someone's they're watching this, they're listening to our conversation. They're going, yeah. Um, I I need to give this some more space. I need to give this some more attention or focus. Uh, So, so when would be the time to look into it and, and where might they begin? Yeah, that's the biggest question. Um, And it really does depend. I, I'm not just saying that I'll give some ideas, but um, it depends on where the couple is. I, I actually am a little cautious, like, too soon. Sometimes let's say they're in disclosure or they're in the mm. middle of something that's like, let's, let's keep, let's keep that moving forward. Cause that's really sure. for the betterment of the couple. So if there's a professional involved to really ask about, you know, could this be a consideration? When might we want to, cause we don't want to veer it off either. If they're on a track of like getting honesty and getting information or, you know, that sort of thing, or she's in the middle of writing an impact. We want to really sit with that. Um, so I think it's really important to be, to think uniquely and creatively with their supports. And if they do have supports going there first, uh, professional supports to say, could this be a consideration? Can we talk about this? 
whether it's now or in a month or two or three, um, so it doesn't get forgotten. Um, and then also if they're ready, um, you know, the AANE website has a directory talking to someone. Again, we, we want to layer these pieces. So just because someone has a neurodiversity expertise, there might be a group to join to gain some insight while you still stay with your primary betrayal trauma, you know, CSAT therapist. So I would say just really sitting and maybe writing down what are the different options because there are different groups. There are different ways. Maybe it's a self-assessment. Maybe it's not time for a neuroclinical. So, you know, doing some self-assessments. Again, I'll have those kind of on the resource list too. Um, But that might be really helpful to start there to kind of just take it again, slow and in stride with where it is. So it doesn't just jerk the couple over to, you know, one direction. It's kind of like, let's try and ease it for the coupleship because this can be a big piece of the dimension to consider. So that is so, so helpful. I really appreciate the, um, the nuance and the care that you are bringing to this discuss discussion, Shauna. Um, it, it matters and it's, it's, it's felt by me as your Mm. conversation partner here. So thank you for that. If, if, um, if anyone, any of our viewers, any of our participants here in the summit, they want to reach out to you, they want to work with you, um, tell them how to do that. Tell them maybe some of the things you have going on, uh, and, and, Mm. and the best way to connect. Okay. Sounds good. Um, thanks for having me. First of all, I just think this is just, I know it was like, let's start talking, let's start having these conversations. And, um, I think every couple is worth looking at Mm. these and I'm super excited to see all the other layers of this summit there too. So I just wanted to say that. Um, but my website is livingstonescoaching.com. If anyone wants to, you know, go there, you can take a look at that. You can email me directly at hello at livingstonescoaching.com. And that way, you know, we can connect via email, um, see what support I do individual work. Um, I do have it on my heart at some point to do some neurodiverse groups. They're not formed yet. They're still brewing. And, um, so, with that growth and my continued learning. And I feel like we're just opening some cans as it relates to betrayal trauma and, you know, recovering in this and, and, and it doesn't have to be, but I think just knowing that, so that may be coming down the road. And like you mentioned, I am writing and that big endeavor is going to be soon. So hopefully that'll gain some insight for, for wow. readers and people that like to hear stories, it's going to be a very raw, real account of trying to mm. get to this piece as well. So thank yeah. you. Well, Shauna, I am so uh, appreciative and grateful for you and the work you do. And I have just huge respect for you. Um, any of our participants hear, hear me say this clearly. Uh, if you if you find yourself in Shauna's care, you are in good hands. <laughs> So um, thank you, Shauna. Appreciate you being a part of this summit. Thanks for having me. Love being here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Betrayal Recovery Radio, hosted by Dr. Jake Porter. 
If you value the content we've shared today, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. For more resources, visit appsats.org. That's A-P-S-A-T-S dot org.